Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, good morning, my friend. Well, it's afternoon for you. So I yeah, say good morning good, good and day. good afternoon. It's yeah, <laughs> uh, good relative moment. How are yeah, you, Scott? Good relative moment. Uh, I'm doing pretty well. I'm uh, you've got some dance party music I've happening got some in the dance background. Dance party music in the background. I like it. I like it. Let yeah. it go. Mm. We're rocking out here in the background. Here never here. quite know what to expect, Shay Scott. Exactly. Never. Never. Uh, it's never a dull moment here in the new. In the new uh, parsonage here. Ah, parsonage, such a great word. It is a great word. You know, one of the things that's fun about living in England is there seems to be this deep-seated need in, in the British dweller to label their abode. And so you walk into these small villages and, you know, so many houses have, have names like the old parsonage, the old mill. Um, you know, the, the something in it, I mean, like this creative profusion of, of labels that, that, you know, they, it just does a little bit more than having a street number, which is kind of our North American way of, of doing things to, to identify the, the place that is home as, you know, this distinctive, you know, location in space time, which is really fun. I love it. I love stuff like that. Absolutely. So I want to hit you with a quotation this morning as I'm the dance music in the background. This is by Reinhold Niebuhr, the great American theologian, theological ethicist, and political theorist. How did I know you were going to hit me with a theologian? Okay, I'm sitting down. I mean, Niebuhr is a guy, like in the middle of the century, they would have this guy come and testify before Congress and stuff. But his, uh, he has this great quote, man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible. But man's inclination to injustice makes democracy necessary. What do you think of that? I feel like I need to give one of my trademark. Mm. <laughs> mm. I like that. Mm. Mm. Let me turn that over my head. So man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible. Man's capacity for injustice makes democracy. Was it necessary? Necessary. Yeah. necessary? Yeah. It's interesting to think so the first the first place my mind goes is just to reflect on how 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 much morality there is in uh our notions of government right like it is this kind of almost like roller coaster connection of of the personal with the societal right with the with the kind of the population level and to like to offer that kind of connection is i mean it's i mean at at one level it's like yeah of course and on the other level like wow that is a giant statement like like to connect the micro and the macro in 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 such a way that at at the same time also says like and and like it is so clear that there can only be one order of things i suppose the the first thing i like the other thing i'm thinking about is you know so i'm a bit of a political junkie obviously and i've been watching the um the U.S. Democratic 
uh, primaries just because it's the best political TV on TV uh, right now. And, you know, there was there were these moments in, in the campaigns and in the debates where uh, Bernie Sanders, sort of the Democratic frontrunner, as we're as we're recording this, is is really being hit hard for um, for finding nice things to say about authoritarian regimes. Right. Which which is is fascinating. I mean, I guess I guess the kind of whole question of like, is democracy the only the only moral good in in government is a fascinating one to me. One, because I absolutely agree with that statement. Like I, I like all of my all of my intuitions, everything I've been raised with connect me to that statement. And yet, you know, I, I lived in China for half a decade. I I studied Chinese politics. I really got like tried to get inside the head of just a completely different moral and political framework. And to some extent, I did. And and so you know that life journey has left me, um, has left me in 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 some ways like oddly afloat and really curious about statements just like the one that you sprung upon me because I can I can both totally get it. And I, I, I could probably totally blow it apart as well, and I'm terrified at the potential of doing so. <laughs> I know those are my those are my initial thoughts. Where do you want to go? Yeah, I think what's interesting here is that uh, Niebuhr. By the way, this background music is totally doing it for me. I know it's fantastic, right? Uh, basically, Niebuhr's grounding his defense upon demo- of democracy, not on pro- the myth of progress or perfectibility, but on this sense that the human condition is both something that's full of hope and full of tragedy. And so he thinks that like, because he, and this is, he's just a robustly tradition, traditional sort of Augustinian Christian here. So he wants to say that basically you know, we're because we're human beings are have the image of God in them. They have this sort of spiritual dimension that allows them to have, you know, to go beyond is to I. And yet we're also sinful, not evil. It's we're not evil. We're, we're fundamentally something good. And yet with this tragic flaw. And so not democracy enables us to sort of share the goods we have in common and use our power together. And yet also distributing it in the sort of Madisonian sense, right? In the American sort of style with all these checks and balances also deals with the sinful, tragic nature that inevitably are, you know, we're, we're, we all just use power badly, you know, even at our best, maybe especially at our best moments, right? We often use it badly because we've got good intentions and can justify things. So I think there, Niebuhr has an interesting sort of yeah, I, grounding I like, of democracy there. So it's good that you, like you kind of, to really get to the like one of the just essential insights into the human experience there at the heart of that is this this notion of is and ought really this notion of of ought that that we have the capacity to um, form uh, I guess the the term is a normative relationship with the world you know what what should I do or what should I have done? I mean, everybody can relate to that as being a, a rich question. Uh, you know, anyone can hear that question and, you know, and it makes you go, hmm, 
and it and it, it 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 kind of makes you search inside yourself it makes you think outside yourself at the same time there is something in just how we are aware of our existence and aware of the nature of our reality that 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 word ought that word should um does work and and one of the reasons that it is such a powerful word in our understanding of reality is that every time we we invoke it we know that we're talking about some kind of distance from what is right that we we know that there is this imperfection and imperfectibility in whatever the demands of that word should put upon us and 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 what our evaluation of our of ourselves either what we're planning to do or what we've just done uh tells us and i guess i guess you know so if that's sort of like the like the the personal human condition that we all occupy that that we can articulate a should either looking forward or looking back and and we're always going to be in some kind of relationship of distance from the should you know what what does that mean in terms of how we should organize with one another right um if that's true about me and if that's true about everyone then it's true about the people with power and so we got to do something about that or we got to think about that and it's really interesting really really interesting then to kind of you know bring this back to to my china experiences how in the in sort of chinese political culture there is like the the mythology is that there is no distance between the is and the should at the central leadership level yeah right there's a kind of moral perfection of these are people who are imbued with the will of the people and are pursuing the will of the people. The imperfections are at the local level, right? At, at the local level where, you know, people encounter the corrupt individuals that are imbued with authority. Oh, there's all sorts of bad shit happening. But it's it's because they aren't, you know, kind of the, the morally perfect beings at at the center. Anything bad goes wrong, you blame the local level. Anything, anything good. And, and what is again, fascinating to me is that it tends to be the exact opposite in our democratic political systems. So right now, um, what's his name? Uh, Mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, he's, he's touting this book that he has about basically how mayors run the world. And he's talking about all the things that it is possible for mayors to do, but that Washington can't do. And why? Because we are closer to the people. And he's actually making this argument that that you know it's 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 the local political leaders who you know have are 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 closer to that should have a closer relationship between the is and the should because they're closer to what people really want out of power. But but Washington that thing way over there at the center is too distant from the should, you know, too caught up in the the advantages that they can amass making their personal is better and better and that's you know that's then the corruption that we need to fight against now can you make sense of that for me why is it that in the democratic political system the the higher you go up our instinct is that there is a greater corruption from the should and in authoritarian political systems the 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 thinking at the grassroots is exactly the opposite that the higher you grow up the closer we're getting to to uh, you know kind of having the 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 is and the should occupy the same. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I wonder if the founding myth is sort of in kind of America, you know, you have especially like 
I mean, there's David Brooks and other people have written about this, like that there's this the Hamiltonian versus the Jeffersonian spirit in America, right? And the Jeffers the Hamiltonian wanted a sort of strong federal bank and central government and stuff. And the Jeffersonians thought, oh no, 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 no. We're 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 at our best locally governed, you know, the government that governs best governs least. And Jefferson had this, you know, kind okay. of yeah, this tension between center and local. Okay. Yeah. And, and, uh-huh. and I think that like oftentimes in our Jeffersonian moments, uh, we we look at the central power as out of touch, as corrupt. As... Now, there are times I think where we are Hamiltonian when like something big, you know, like Eisenhower, FDR or some other moments where Lincoln, I mean, you know, where we need to be. Uh, you know, it's, uh, what is it, e, e pluribus unis, in, you know, through many, one, you know, where there are seasons where we emphasize our unity, like when we need to do something big as a country. And other times, especially when it seems like government isn't working, then we go to the suits, the pluribus, you know, the plurality. And we think that, you know, we look to the, the local level and we see it thriving. And I guess I would guess the opposite is for the author, authoritarian regime, you know, it's sort of, uh, you find your identity not locally, but in 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 the one, like in in our in the thing that connects us all and gives us a sense, you know, a reason for being collectively. So I I guess it's different founding mythology. Yeah, I think so. There's a there's a few threads I want to pick up there. Maybe the 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 second one being, it seems that in in kind of the um, the authoritarian mythology, one of the one of the senses is that the ought the should expresses better out of a group process that that when it's a very individual evaluation you're you're not likely to land close to the should but when when it's a a kind of a large group evaluation then kind of the, those those individual motivations and irrelevancies get sort of you know dissolved away and what what remains and what's real is is sort of the public interest the the public good and i think that i think that that is somehow part of the just the difference in authoritarian versus versus democratic worldview is is um how do we get closer to the should is it is it about um you know really identifying with that piece of divinity inside ourselves like a very introspective self-honesty kind of thing or is it a more outward you know identification with the the needs of the people and when you when you stand high enough and you can see far enough then then you're best placed to to connect with that and whatever truth it is that you're hold that you're grasping from that privileged position is going to be more reliable than you know the limited vision of the people who don't have that privileged position. I think that's it, part of it. Yeah, it, it's interesting too because I think this is another quote from the, from a book Niebuhr wrote called "The Children of Light." But here he's talking about the virtues you need for a demo- what you need to practice democracy, and you don't need this in an autocracy, right? He says democracy requires something more than a religious devotion to moral ideals. It requires religious humility. Every absolute devotion to relative political ends, and all political ends are relative, is a threat to communal peace. But religious humility is no simple moral or political achievement. 
It springs only from the depth of a religion which confronts the individual with a more ultimate majesty and purity than all human majesties and values. And so here he's thinking that, that you know, and he's not arguing you suspend all judgments, you know, regarding relative good, you know, and particular ends, because you have to do that to have political communal life. But rather, he wants you to acknowledge that, you know, while you can vigorously pursue what you think is true, you can also gracefully tolerate your opponents realizing that they could be right, you know, even though you don't think they are. And you go into this with, you know, in good faith, and you're not judged necessarily, he thinks, by your uh, by your, the effectiveness of things, but by your good faith in that you're, you're, you really are, do believe you're serving the common good. And yet it also, you're acknowledging the relativity of all political ends and the fact that you could, you could have it wrong, even though to act passionately, you have to believe you're right to some degree or that you're seeking the good and you have to have all these things. Now, if you're in China, you don't need these vir- these same kind of virtues. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a different kind of virtue. It is. Uh, so there's this, like, it's the, you know, there is this, I guess the, the, uh, the ultimate faith of democracy is faith in the process, right? Trust the process. And, you know, the process will lead us to the good. Um, whereas in, in authoritarian systems, you know, the process isn't imbued with any particular value, right? It is, it is the ends uh, against which we're, we're going to measure ourselves. Um, and I guess where my mind is going right now, I'm thinking of, you know, like what one of the difficult, I think, cases right now um, that maybe challenges both perspectives is climate change. Yeah. And I think, I think on the one hand, you've got this, I think there is this, I don't know how, how widely held it is, but I feel like it's out there, this perspective that actually, here's a good example of where authoritarian government can just do more faster. See the big problem, marshal resources, change the way the system works, you know, blow past these long tortured conversations of people who don't get the science and crap like that. And just just in a technocratic way, do what needs to be done on a big scale. What's interesting, I haven't looked this up myself, but uh, there was a there was a public lecture uh, at Cambridge University a couple of weeks ago for the founding of the it's uh, the future the Center for the Future of Democracy. So, I mean, sounds like something I wanted to check out, have to check it out. Anyway, and they had uh, uh, a Canadian uh, academic of, I guess, political theory there, uh, Michael Ignatieff. Don't know if you've heard of Ignatieff. I don't think I have. I mean, so he was at Harvard for a number of years and like, you know, big sort of political ethicist, stuff like that. He's now, or I think was until Victor um, Orban kicked him out. He was head of, uh, I forget the name of the university in Hungary, you know, very liberal, liberal university, uh, George Soros funded university, I believe. I'm getting all these details wrong. Anyway, so Michael Ignatieff talking um, and he pointed out, so I don't know where he pulled this data from, that if you look at countries of the world where uh, carbon intensity is flatlining or declining, i.e. were, you know, not necessarily like total emissions are falling, but emissions per sort of unit of GDP, let's say, are falling. Um, where the most progress is being made is in the liberal democratic countries. So, and, and, and he was, he's an older guy. So he's talking about like in the sweep of, you know, the last couple of generations of democratic politics in his, his starting point was about 1970. He said, this is like the whole conversation 
the the political reality of the environment in liberal democratic discourse is just it's night and day. I mean, it is this massive conversation now. And so he and, and then he points to he points to sort of like present day Canada where, you know, we're a federal state where um, energy resources are state level uh, domains of power. So you've got the energy producing states, uh, my home, Saskatchewan, Alberta to next door, who are strongly against things like a carbon tax. And you've got the energy consuming states who want to go as green as possible. And that's that's tearing the country apart, like at least in, in its politics. On yeah, it's, and there's it's the mirror conversation here, the blue and the red states. Yeah, to, it, it, yeah. in the United States, it's the mirror conversation. So his argument is that like this is the process. And if you look at how far we've come since 1970, and you look at how well the liberal democracies are doing versus the authoritarian countries right now, it uh, the process is apparently working. So you you have some voices saying like the process is not working. We need to suspend the process and just you know, do what must be done with emergency powers or something like that, you know, some version of that argument. And he's saying like, no, no, no. I mean, what are we talking about? The process is working and it needs to be this contentious and fractious because the reality is that there are people's jobs and, 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 and livelihoods uh, and, you know, the well-being of their family on the line. So you got to figure out, you know, the, the realities of how differently these, these, um, these consequences are going to fall on people. So I, I feel like, you know, climate change is maybe that example that supports, well, what is his name? The, the Niebuhr, yeah, Niebuhr, Niebuhr, yeah. Supports Niebuhr's original point that there is something in the process that helps us to zig and zag. Well, I, I also, I just before you, I also have this fear that we just, that's what we just keep telling ourselves, right? We have all of these, we have this very strong mythology about democracy that, you know, it's it's the worst form of government except any other except the alternatives or you know that the arc of history bends toward progress or i think uh obama talked about you know we, we zig and we zag but we kind of move forward we we do have this strong faith in uh a progressive narrative through this process and i wonder if i wonder you know is that right or is that the story we like to tell ourselves yeah, I think it's interesting. I think that that is, I mean, well, part of like, you know, uh, our enlightenment legacy is the kind of optimistic sort of human progress. And, and I mean, Niebuhr is critical of that. I mean, he thinks that, you know, that that is kind of naive, although he's hopeful, but he's not sort of a, 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 an enlightenment kind of optimist. But I think, you know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the New York senator, kind of, you know, he's just such a fascinating figure. Uh, he said, once the central conservative truth is that it is culture, not politics, that determines the success of a society. The central liberal truth is that politics can change a culture and save it from itself. And I think he's right on there. And and I mean, this is one of these things where, like, I listen to a Republican millennial pollster, uh, shoot, uh, Kirsten, I forget her, her name, but she was talking with on a podcast about how millennial Republicans, you know, conservative Republicans are, are so environmentally conscious now. You don't think of you know, of just throwing out a plastic bottle and not recycling and stuff. Even if they're antagonistic on certain climate science, the way they think cultural, culturally an act tends to betray a belief that ecology is important and things like this. And so like, that's an example, I think, where even the people that are arguing against it have been shaped by a culture that's realized that there's a real problem. Uh, and that's a real power when, when you have a cultural shift that that it's in the zeitgeist, you know. But, the, but again, I, I think the flip side is true that that some there are these times for 
collective intervention that saves the culture from itself on civil rights and other other issues where you know where 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 there was or you think of uh, the New Deal where there there were instances where it needed where government where, where government did need to sort of reorient the culture in ways without controlling the culture. You know, uh, you know, it's it's not as though it's autocratic necessarily, but there is a sense that government action does save the culture from from some of its short sightedness, but it can't do it all the time, and and that's not when I think cultures, democratic cultures, are thriving best when it, the big interventions are happening all the time. So this, like this kind of, um, you know, these two causal causal variables, you know, is it politics or is it culture, um, and which is the which which is the driver um, or the safeguard? It, it, it's funny you bring that up because if I can be a total geek, so this is the book that I'm reading right now. Uh, uh, thinking, rethinking social movement. Um, I like that. And like it's it's a total it's a book only for geeks because it's a, it's an academic book. It's basically a um, like an edited collection of essays on uh, sort of the political science of. Uh, social movements and having having sort of read this book you you come to the you know the 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 scholarly and also quite simple conclusion that the answer is both yeah yeah (laughs) right Right? that that uh you know culture shapes so much uh of of just the political opportunity space um and and political action and and similarly uh politics shapes so much of of culture uh, and you know, you look at um, you know the the civil rights movement, for example. So people who feel like they don't have um, strong representation within sort of existing political structures, they have to they have to recruit other ways, right? So you have like Martin Luther King, who's who's like wrapped in sort of Baptist Christian legitimacy around ideas of justice. Um, to argue for greater participation in, you know, mainstream political structures, uh, and people who are already part of those political structures, they they tend to rely more upon and kind of exhaust the opportunity spaces of of being a participant in these existing political processes before saying like, oh no, we gotta we gotta we gotta reach outside of these processes for something that gives us a lever a lever against them. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It is this both end and and you kind of I think you're right too that you you see like you know when you have a hammer everything looks like a nail, right? And so you you te- you tend to be, you know, you you te- we That's all t- good. I got to write that down. You know, it's just true though, right? We all we all <laughs> Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. I mean, there there are 14 golf clubs in a bag for a reason, right? Like, you know, you you don't have to, you don't need to hit the 7 iron every time. Like, but that's it tends that's how we tend to work as human beings, right? We tend to gravitate towards our skill set what's readily available and that sort of filters how we view our reality i think this is that's helpful that like hey and this is part of the democratic humility thing and thinking through okay and yeah it's interesting too because one of niebuhr's points too is he's like okay you might be oppressed and have the moral high ground because there's a legitimate injustice against you but if things were situated differently it wouldn't take long for you to be the oppressor and the power group you know because he just thinks human nature is tragic like that so one day the oppressed will if if given enough unchecked power, become oppressors in a different way, and this is part of just the nature, and this is kind of what keeps him with it with this idea that de- democracy is is great on our hopeful end because it allows us to have a shared sense of the good we have in common and seek reasons together to build a better site. But also, it's necessary for the shadow side because it it takes the power and makes it more diffuse, which which 
allows mitigates some of the damage power can do when it gets too concentrated. You know, just listening to that, I'm thinking the other thing that is the other nuance to explore is do we and the answer is yes. Do do we, you know, kind of over essentialize the difference between, say, democracy and authoritarian um, between democracy and other forms of, of governments? And I, and I think that we do. And, you know, I don't I, there is something and by essential universal you're saying, about, you're saying like it, the difference is more uh is less kind and more degree you know it's it, yeah. it, 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 it's more so i think there are some things you know and cultural differences definitely are are real and so you know we have a universal humanity and yet it doesn't mean the same thing to all of us like there is that is part of you know we can i can think of a lot of examples where there's a, there's a real difference um even to the point of just as an aside like language um, it tends, you know, Chinese, for example, such a metaphorical language, so many kind of ambiguities and contradictions that if you look, if you do kind of a systematic study of like favorite idioms, uh, Chinese idioms versus American idioms tend to be far more kind of, uh, I, I can't think of a good example at the top of my head, but they, they're, they're all about contradictions. You know, it's both apple and orange kind of thing. Um, and, and, and yet we're still able to c- talk about idioms. They're yeah, this so, is the thing. right, right. Yeah, so there's yeah. this, and so you know, I think about like there is this sort of you know this intuitive sense of this spark of divinity inside me. There is this sense of I can, I can articulate a should to myself, and and that is I think universal. And 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 however society is ordered, you got to kind of find a place for that to go, right? So in you know kind of classic imperial China. Um, there's always an office. I forget the the formal name of it. Basically, there's an office in Beijing for petitions. So if I feel like you know whatever, maybe everybody's been following the law, but it hasn't done justice to me. I can go to that office and petition for kind of you know the the wisdom of the of the imperial court to see this injustice and correct it. Like you had to have that kind of way of saying, yeah, that that spark of should that you feel like there's something wrong here. It has to be able to go somewhere. It exists in like the current communist party system in China. And that, I mean, there are all sorts of corruptions about the suppression of the capacity to do that. But, but the idea is, is, is still, is still there. I mean, even in, even in like the way that, you know, power in authoritarian states is legitimized, you do have practices like elections know whether we consider them free or fair is a totally separate thing but but there is somehow this process of that there is this spark within individuals and and there is an accumulation of those sparks into a kind of mass validation that okay you're going to do this and you're doing it on our behalf there's a kind yeah, of delegation of that spark but that spark has to go somewhere there's at least a symbol of the consent of the governed even if it's largely symbolic symbols are powerful Right. I mean, right. I'm saying, even if we wouldn't think it's real consent, even symbolic consent would, what did T.S. Eliot say? Like even illusion, even illusions have reality. They have illusory reality. <laughs> that's interesting. So that's, that, that seems to me to be the kind of, uh, go back, go back to, can you reread the, the, the quote that we began this with? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The quote we began with is uh, there we go. Let me find it back here. What we began with was 
Man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, but man's inclination to injustice makes democracy necessary. See, I feel like I understand what he's saying a lot better now. This idea that our capacity for justice makes democracy possible. This this capacity, the justice is a very grand word, like more simply, our capacity to articulate an I should. Yeah. Um, makes democracy possible, makes it so that we have sort of meaningful content to work on together, which is my perceived gap between should and is. Yeah. And it, and if, if I have no, if I have no capacity to see that distance to, to be aware of such a distance, then, then it really isn't possible to, to do democracy. There's not, there, there's nothing to grab hold of. There's no work to be done. The work is, the work is that gap. Um, and then, and then the strong form of the statement is to say, and it's also what makes democracy necessary. In some ways, now that we think about it, I, I feel like that's the more contentious piece of of the statement. I mean, I, again, I fully subscribe to it, but I can imagine embodying a view that says, well, it may not be uh, the only way to solve that gap. And I guess we can go, you know, think of. You know, think of if we think of the broader sweep of history, um, you know, empires with priest kings who are who are, you know, their job is to resolve the difference between should and is. And and actually, probably we have a shared mythology that the should really isn't something that we can see as an individual. You need some kind of access to heaven or to the gods in order to understand how what is isn't what it should be and then the and then the scale of that the implications you know requires that kind of god king priest figure to to say right okay we need to build a giant temple over there or or we need to sacrifice you know this percentage of our production in order to put things back in balance in order to to reorder um, the earth to kind of fit. But don't you think the, the priest, cosmos? the priest king, or the, the the king, the ruler, the, the the monarch, the emperor, is a sort of on some level it's an evolution, right? Like if you're in tribal society, right, and mm. things are probably a little more democratic on one level because everyone's a hunter gatherer, everybody's something and try. Like there's a lot of shared power because power is diffuse, and yet you're a lot more vulnerable, right? You can try to trade with this tribe; they could come in and slaughter you, and you know things are there's not a lot of recourse to hire any higher authority because there's everybody's tribal. So then the king comes in and says, look, you're going to give up some of your autonomy, but in exchange for that autonomy, I'm going to give you some more order, right? And so we'll all be, you know, I'll protect this confederation of tribes and groups. And, and together we'll have, you'll have recourse to, you know, the justice of, of, of the, of the king of the, of the sovereign. So on some level, right, that's, it allows more trading and allows other things and, and it allows protection from outsiders. And yet it, it does, you do diminish some of that local freedom. And then when you get to sort of an enlightenment, you know, participatory democracy, you're saying, well, what if we all were the sovereign? Like, what if we had the protection, uh, you know, of, of, of the central figure and yet without it all concentrated in one figure. And I think what happens a little bit, like with say someone like Donald Trump and populism, when we're anxious, we go back, uh, we regress a little bit into, all right, 
let's take a little more of the power and responsibility out of the collective and put it into one, <laughs> which, which is kind of like, you know, I mean, the way he thinks politically is kind of like a pre-modern sovereign. It all should be about me. It's all, I need loyal. I need Royal Cone. I need people that are loyal. It's much more like an old school, but you know, that's where I think that like, it's interesting because it, it is this sort of, you know, uh, it, it is this balance of how do we get this centralized thing, security ability to, to, to make things happen societally with also preserving individual power, freedom, and dignity. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, the way I summarize democracy is it's, it's saying let's, you know, let's be fueled by, I guess, trust and hope and goodwill to form democratic society in order to explore complex pathways to, um, a world of collective prosperity that we've never seen. And, you know, the alternative is let's be fueled by, you know, fear and anxiety to follow the strong leader down a divisive pathway to a world we understand. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's kind of the, there, there is a, there is a, uh, you know, a radicalism to democracy um, it is in, in some ways, a you know, it always has been, we've just kind of become habituated to it, but it is a completely radical idea. Um, and, and it is, you know, always reaching toward some imagined better future of, yeah, shared prosperity, which, yeah. which no one has ever really seen unless, you know, I guess it's fashionable right now in, you know, democratic U.S. circles to talk about Denmark apparently is the... He's the latest, right, right, right. He's the latest paragon all... of liberal democracy. <laughs> so, Which, uh, I love Denmark. Denmark hey, yeah, hey, I've never been, but um, they produce Kierkegaard, so uh, it can't be all but that. There, but there's definitely something about, you know, you said like, you know, you know, when you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I guess part of what is, you know, part of what separates us from, you know, let's say ancient Egypt 5,000 years ago. <sighs> Climate. Is, yeah, well, yeah. But, but you know, is is what is real i mean you know 5000 years ago you know like some of the dominant facts were things like the annual cycle of the seasons you know the planting and the harvest you know early uh, civilizations that that grew on the backs of sort of domesticated agriculture you know these agrarian civilizations um you know that 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 annual cycle was far more real than you know, any any kind of notion of linear progress of sort of breaking that cycle and, you know, five years from now being very far ahead from from this year. Um, and we've kind of, you know, so as as just our our way of approaching the world has moved from recurrence to progress. I think that that has had a is part of what has had a real difference of kind of breaking the myth of that strong god king priest breaking the myth that that the should comes from some like transcendent understanding of yeah. governing cycles of things and the need to do like we got to change big shit to to align with heaven to um you know almost kind of a much more like like you know the universe in microcosm in each one of us and and how 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 are things going to be better for my children or for me in ten years? Those those are the that's the level of reality that we yeah. we care about now, right? It's very different. This is where I appreciate Niebuhr because he's 
he was able to speak in transcendent terms across, I mean, from his tradition, but to um, a broader, it's funny, I think there's still a group at Harvard that meets called Atheists for Niebuhr. Um, <laughs> okay. But, uh, he's this, I'll just conclude. With you this. You got to join that group. Oh, yeah, I love that it. That would be awesome. And so, like, just, you know, Niebuhr really reminds me of, you know, kind of an Augustinian Christian ethic. He, well, he was. <laughs> he, he, he rediscovered Augustine for him. But he also wrote the serenity prayer. You know, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. You see that all the He wrote that. Oh, okay. You should have but, led with that. And then I oh, would know yeah. who you're talking about. But he says this, though. This is a great conclusion. thought. The final wisdom of life requires not the annulment of incongruity, but the achievement of serenity within and above it. Nothing that is worth doing can be achieved in our lifetime. Therefore, we must be saved by hope. Nothing which is true or beautiful or good makes complete sense in any immediate context of history. Therefore, we must be saved by faith. Nothing we do, however virtuous, can be accomplished alone. Therefore, we are saved by love. No virtuous act is quite as virtuous from the standpoint of our friend or foe as it is from our standpoint. Therefore, we must be saved by the final form of love, which is forgiveness. And I just think that is like such a great and you could be a completely secular person and and and, and buy into that that's just what i find where he's compelling but those are the kind of things you need to sort of move a sort of democratic society forward you need to have these sort of hopes and yet a, a horizon for them and it's kind of you know humility that that enables you to act and yet act uh, with a, with a with a humility, a bold humility. I, I think this goes back to some of the ideas we were talking about last week, and the the kind of you know scientific materialism, yeah, of the last couple of centuries, where we, you know, in the industrial revolution, we we reordered our whole societies around the notion that you know what is real is kind of the material productive processes of the economy, and everything else is kind of unreal. You know, religion is, you know, basically a, a, a form of spiritual entertainment. Like, you know, it's but but what is real, what is matter, what is concrete stuff worthy of um, public interest is uh, our material production and how we go about it. And it seems that, you know, the invitations are sort of all around us now to say there there is a lot. There's a lot that is real and which is outside of that net. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, you know, you, you can you can pick your point on the spectrum. You can almost you can be totally new age. You can be just totally secular head down, want to get work done. Either way, you're kind of starting to recognize the imposition of larger truths upon um, upon uh, sort of a way of encountering the world that that has become, you know, very atomistic very kind of isolated and, and, and disconnected and, you know, and, 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 it, and it's everywhere. I mean, to talk again, hammer and nail, you know, talk to my friends in public health and, and all that they can see in front of their faces is um, mental health disorders. Yeah. People who feel, um, you know, atomized, disconnected, disaffected, right. You, you, you know, talk to urban planners and all that they can see is the kind of, contradictions between the individual household choices people are making and what would make more sense at a collective level. You know, talk to the environmentalists and all that they can see <laughs> is the disconnect between your individual behaviors and collective outcomes. You know, we see it in our political science, like all that we can talk about is this kind of struggle between 
our our personal either hopes or anxieties and you know what happens when you magnify those uh, across the whole of society. So it's like it's staring us right in the face that that this is the work figuring out how do we how do we achieve some kind of meaningful integration of these of these different perspectives. Um, and yet, and yet we really struggle to do it. I wonder if you know now. Niebuhr is. I, I assume he's no longer with us. Is he? He's, he's deceased. He is deceased. Because uh, I'd really like to. Now that we've kind of really worked through some of his thinking, I'd really like to talk to him. Like when he when he talked about the necessity of democracy. Um. How 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 where where was he at at the end with that? Is the necessity of democracy because you know, in a kind of utilitarian way, that's how we're going to ultimately, you know, mediate between the wins and the losses across society and and find the productive path forward? Or was he, you know, at, at the end of life, did he reach a kind of almost more spiritual place? He's like, it's it, the necessity is that only, only when we are all sovereign does it really become necessary to kind of, you know, all of us put our hammers, put our individual tools that we've been using to kind of chip understanding out of reality on the table together and, and say to one another, okay, like, this is what I've figured out. This is what I've found. This is what I've I found and reach a kind of integrated understanding. His, his understanding was not like, although he thought it was practical, it wasn't rooted in mere pragmatism. It was really, he thought that, he thought this kind of anthropology <clears throat> that he thought he got from the Bible and places like St. Augustine really gets humanity more right than wrong. And that hmm. the democratic project does the best to do justice to the dignity and create creative freedom of the human being. Also building in safeguards for the shadow side and the tragic nature of human being. And so while, you know, he, his political positions, I mean, he, you know, obviously were different because he's the guy that was writing from the thirties to the seventies, you know, they, you know, the, the issues and things change, but that fundamental conviction that this the democratic project is rooted not in some sentimentality, but in a, a realistic view of what human being Nature is. is. Yeah, mm. I mean that's what he thought. Mm. Well, my friend, it's been great again, and uh, next week maybe we'll try to bring a big tool belt and not see everything as a nail. I'll bring my golf clubs. Yeah, exactly. I'll bring it, <laughs> and then you have more to laugh about. Absolutely. Thanks, my friend. Take care, Scott. See you. Thanks for listening to The Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.